You know, I never checked to see if that recording message was playing through. But in any event, folks, we are back. Episode number 35. I am your host, Jimmy Hackett. Joining me, as always, my charming co-host. Joseph Stanford. Another action-packed, fun episode today. We'll be covering two chapters of the beginning of Infinity, Chapter 4 on creation, and Chapter 5 on the reality of abstractions. But before hopping into that, as always, we start with our weekly review from Joe. Joe, how was your week? A weekly roundup. Uh, good week. It's starting to get uh, warmer here in Portland, Oregon, um, which begs the question for you, Jim. What are what are some of your favorite summer activities, warm weather activities? Uh, staying inside, uh, being within arms reach of air conditioning. Um, you know, back in the day, I really, my, my favorite activity I did as a kid that I haven't done in probably like 10 years was going tubing. Is that, a, you know, like just getting drive behind a boat and holding off for dear life. I was pretty good. You know, I always had a good strength to weight ratio. That was always one of my perks growing up. So I could, you know, I could, I could get low in the tube and hold on for dear life. And I was, I was pretty good. I, w- I was a legend in the parts where I grew up. Uh, you know, I was known for being a, a, a difficult person to like, toss off the, uh, the old tube. So, but uh, now that I'm older, uh, my warm weather activities are mostly avoiding warm weather. That's, that's my specialty. How about Thanks. yourself? Staying in air conditioning? Yes. Well, you, you talked about strength to weight ratio. Um, I, that, that's probably pretty good for, for activities like rock climbing or uh, cage fighting yeah. even, right? Do you have any experience with those? Um, I've, I've never been a cage fighter. I thought about it, you know, if I ever got tough, but, uh, rock climbing is a thing I would like to do, but I have these tiny little hands. I don't know what that, I think it would be kind of a detriment there. Uh, maybe it'll so. give you good leverage and you know, shorter, uh, shorter leverage arms. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. But then I got to like reach the rock itself. You know, I, I, you know, I don't mm. know. These, these tiny little mittens are never good for much. So. All right, well, we'll find something, something to put them in too. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll find something for my hands. Um, What's an activity that you enjoy doing over the summertime? Um, wearing sunscreen. <laughs> wearing sun. Oh yeah, of course, absolutely. Not getting sunburned. <laughs> yeah, that's probably my favorite. Um, yeah, yeah. No, anything. I know. I'm. I'm all about just it. Living in Portland, it, it becomes pretty apparent how much of a difference the sun makes for just mental health. Just right. Feeling different. Like yep. they, they call it seasonal depression or whatever they want to call it, but no, they I never think- call it seasonal mania when the sun's out maybe we're just we just become batshit crazy when the sun's out it's always we assume that we're depressed I mean, what, what if that's normal and we're all just crazy when it's hot outside no one ever thinks about it and it just feels better to be crazy yeah. <laughs> i hope so yeah sure. <laughs> i i agree with you You know what i've been doing more I, as i as you read more and more and it seemed to let me realize that you need to be walking more and so i have been going on more walks that's that's been my you know my my lifestyle shift is it going a couple walks a day? Um, yeah. Usually one after lunch, one late afternoon. Um, and, and having the sun out makes a big difference for that. You know, it's not very fun to walk out when it's muggy outside, but when, when, the, when the sun's out, when the, when the sky is blue, it's a fun little experience. Where are you, where are you doing your walks to? Um, I just walk around the apartment complex or we walk across the street to the, the coffee shop. That's you know, kind, of the, kind of the route. We usually so pretty short walks, but... To the Circle K to pick up some more hot cheetahs. <laughs> you know, it's there's a coffee place across from our apartment. Uh, I don't know if it's a local one or not, like a chain, but uh, it's it's like just across the, the street. So we normally walk there on the weekends, and um, I do walk to a gas station. Not 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 a Circle K. It's called uh, Joe's Fine Wine and mm-hmm. Tobacco and Lottery, uh, where the wine is fine most of the time. And I mean, what uh, else do you need? I don't. It, it, it's all my food. You know, all my food groups. All, all and, your uh, vices in one, one, under one roof. Right. I mean, it's very convenient. And uh, so I normally walk there on uh, a couple of times a week and, uh, you know, re- restocking all the essentials, re- restocking all the essential empty calories. And, you know, I'm usually set for the week. Perfect. Yep. Yeah. Um, I don't know. When was, have you ever put any money into a lottery? Have you ever uh, gambled? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely not. And if you're listening, don't. I, uh, I, we, I should say, we make very hard to not give any financial advice on, on this show because we don't know anything about finance. I will say this with a pretty clear conscience. Don't gamble. <laughs> that feels like a safe bet to me. Would you consider Dogecoin investing in Dogecoin gambling? I, uh, I, I am uh, restraining all comment on cryptocurrency in the moment. I uh, don't understand it. I don't have an opinion on it. It's beyond me. Uh, so 
I, I, I don't know. I, I, I have no opinion on crypto right now. Let's say it's very, it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's very cryptographic to me. I think it's very, uh, it's very crypto. It definitely lives up to its name. So, oh, there you go. Yeah. Enough very- said about that. How, how, how has your week been? My week was pretty good. I, uh, it was raining for like three weeks in Houston. Finally got a little bit of break in the weather today. Mm. Um, so happy to spend it inside on the show as always. And, um, it was a, it was a pretty good week. It was a pretty good week. Um, got me thinking about our episode last episode that we did. And, uh, so I'm going to make fun of myself for, for a little bit, you know, Joe and I were, were planning on, on how to do this show. And, um, you know, one of our concerns was, you know, we wanted to cover it in a way that hadn't been covered before. And so I went on a little research mission to, to watch some other shows. I mentioned those shows at the end of the episode last time. One in particular that I mentioned was this, uh, this, uh, made you think, podcast and uh, i was thinking about our show we did last week you asked me a question about material and about knowledge and i gave i gave an example using an airplane as a metaphor and uh, sometime during the week I, i was thinking to myself when or where did that metaphor come from and then I realized, oh, it came from that Made You Think podcast. So I wanted to make fun of myself for not giving them more credit for that example. So that goes to Made You Think podcast. Check them out. We gave them a shout out last week. And then also something funny, another brain worm or another meme that got in my head from last week's episode as well, was um, how, we'll, how we'll cover the multiverse chapter, and so, mm-hmm. um, which is going to be coming up probably in, in a few weeks. And so on their show, they, they were going to skip it. I, I suspect that we might skip part of it because it looks it's pretty complicated. But um, I think I have a couple ideas about that that we'll, we can talk about off air to prepare for it. But uh, wanted to give them a shout out there as well because uh, as always on our show we give our, our sources credit whenever we remember to. So mm. so check out the Major Think podcast. But um, I I am excited for this episode, Joe, because I think that these two chapters, chapter four and chapter five, one on creation and the other on the reality of abstractions, are crucial chapters for the rest of the book. And I, as I was thinking more about this book, what, what makes it so interesting is that it's hard, it's hard to really say what chapter is the most important. In, in a way, every chapter links into itself like yeah. a jigsaw puzzle. I, it, it, it doesn't feel like it's a book that kind of stacked on itself for that some books do the way that like, for example, in, in Jacob Sanginga's book that we, that we covered where like every chapter was like a perfect lead into the next one. And then it was just like a stepping stone until you got to the conclusion. This book feels much more like a puzzle slowly coming together. And, yeah. uh, and for that reason, it's hard to really say which chapter is more or less important than the other. But uh, I definitely think that these two chapters are definitely crucial for the rest of the book. And so I'm curious to see uh, what, what your thoughts are on those chapters as well. Yeah, uh, I had originally intended to read a little bit more than just these two chapters over the past week. But uh, like you said, these are, these are critical chapters and they're, they're, they're heavy hitters. So I look forward to, to, to being able to simplify them a little bit today and, and, and work through some, some questions or misunderstandings I might have. And I'm, I'm sure both of us will be full of misunderstandings. <laughs> this is, like I said, definitely not, not, definitely not easy reading, but definitely important reading. Um, so let's, let's jump right into it. Let's start with chapter four. So chapter four was all about this notion of creation. And in mm-hmm. particular, this idea of, of knowledge creation. And we're presented with basically two, two main areas of the world where knowledge creation takes place. One is in the human mind with a process of conjecture and criticism. And the other is in some kind of genetic evolution where you have a mutation that is then put through some kind of natural selection process that acts mm-hmm. as a filter for that gene to then go on and reproduce. So we're presented with these two broad ideas of how creation takes place. And uh, importantly, the idea that creation is recognizable by this idea that a thing that is created is hard to vary without changing how well it serves some purpose. Um, and that leads to you know, the original ideas of, of having intelligent design. Uh, you're presented with this creature, a mouse is the example they have in the book, or a pocket watch was given by the philosopher of, of the last name of, of, uh, of Paley, the idea that you look at this watch in nature and you think, you know, there's really no way that I could change any part of that watch and make it better. Therefore, it, it appears to have been designed. Each, each piece appears to be doing something in particular that serves a purpose. And if I were to change one of those aspects of it, the watch would stop working as well as it was prior to the modification. Right. 
Yeah, no, I like how he goes through uh, different different forms or theories for how we obtain knowledge, like you said, like creationism, and talked about another one called Lamarckism. Essentially, mm-hmm. just they use the example of like a giraffe, and and uh, I mean Lamarckism, Lamarckism. He eventually, after explaining it, says it's not the greatest explanation for things. Right. But the example he gave was like a giraffe who like reaches its neck continuously over its lifetime. And then that elongation of the neck right. will somehow translate to the child or to the offspring. Right, right. And that was like a way of thinking about it until sure. the Darwin guy came around, sounds like. Well, um, what's funny too, I don't know if I have this quite right, but I, I, I think there was even that idea of Lamarckism might have existed even maybe before him, or there's a, there, there was the idea that you would inherit, like if you were to undergo some kind of bodily trauma in your life, that you could pass that on to your children. I think that might've even been around in like the ancient times. I seem to recall that being an idea in like ancient Rome or ancient Greece or something as well. And it yeah. kind of makes sense because you think you're this body and if you're hurt, if you don't know where your how your genes are passed on to your children, why wouldn't you think that your injuries are passed on to your children? Like, if you're yeah, having yeah. a contagious disease or something, it's, it kind of seems to make sense in your mind of like, well, I pass these things on to people. We don't really know how. We don't know what germs are yet. So it kind of there was there, there was a, there was a thinking there. And I think what I like about uh, David Bush is that when he explains these things, he gives them their due credit. You know, he I mean he really explains them in good detail. He doesn't just gloss over and say, yeah, there's this, but it's wrong, and then there's this, but it's wrong. I mean, he spends like you know two pages going over the theory of Lamarckism before saying why it's why it's not sufficient. I thought that was yeah. pretty impressive. <laughs> I, I think he does that quite a bit where he explains some some idea that's outdated or something. And it's like, you know, I'm reading through it and I'm like, oh, okay, finally, I understand what he's saying. I get this idea. And he's like, oh, but this is totally wrong. Like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I just put in all that effort to understand the concept. <laughs> it's apparently not the right one. Right, right. Um, but he also, he oh, he's like, he's talking a lot about uh, Richard Dawkins. Yes. And, um, is Dawkins, I, I forgot to look this up. Is he also at Oxford with David Butch? That's a good question. Um, Cause that would make sense. It sounds they're like both British. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I know yeah. about. Yeah. That the book, the, the selfish gene is, is a, of course a famous book. I haven't read it myself, but I mean, it's a book that you, you see people talk about frequently and that you hear people talk about frequently. Um, clearly it was a big book in David Deutsch's life, but it obviously inspired a lot of his thinking as well. So um you know, it's and Dawkins in general is kind of known for being a scientific philosopher and a thinker. So it's yeah, yeah. All, all, all in the same family in some way, but I'm not sure what, what institution he's at. Um, yeah. So before we get to the selfish gene, because mm-hmm. that, that is important, um, though it lays out like Darwin's theory of uh, natural selection is what he calls it. But, right. Uh, he actually had some some beef with the term natural selection. He wanted to call it evolution by variation and selection instead. Right. And I didn't quite understand why that was. I think that he was maybe hinting at natural selection kind of like has a like some sort of reductivism or like it, mm. it implies that there's some sort of designer in natural selection, I guess. I don't know. I didn't quite understand that all the way, but uh he, he outlined, you know, the Darwin's theory, and then he also contrasted that with the neo-Darwinism, right? right? Which essentially is Darwinism minus survival of the fittest. And I think that kind of factors in the selfish gene, which says that species don't evolve for the greater good of the species. They right. evolve for the greater good of the individual. And I think the example he gave was of, uh, you know, birds that maybe the most optimal time for them to nest is March or something. And the right. reason for that is because of the temperature, because of the predators, like hibernation habits, like a whole multitude of things that goes into it. But uh, he's saying that, yeah, okay, but what if some birds start nesting a little bit earlier than March? You know, what if they start nesting in February? Then they get precedent, they get top pick priority over all the nesting, the good nesting spots. So even though it's not beneficial for the entire species, it helps out these these few species that get get there. You know, the early bird gets the worm type thing. Right, right. I, I thought that was interesting. Just that it was like an addition to Darwinism, you know, subtracting that natural selection concept and then adding in this this selfish gene concept. Yeah, and I, I think even even to your point, it's not even even for the good of the individual. It's just for the good of that gene. 
And so yeah. it, like, it's even more selfish than even just the person, you know, because that bird is going to have a harsher life if it's living in a, in a worse optimum time for it to be in that nesting zone, right? So, so even it's not even for the good of the individual, it's just for the good of that gene and not even really for the good of the gene in general, but just for the good of that gene to, to replicate itself rather than its other variants. And so, uh, and I think that's where the name, the selfish gene comes from is that this, the gene has very, you know, it's like tunnel vision almost, and it can't even see beyond just beating out its, its, its competitors in, in some way. Of course, it's not really, the gene isn't thinking anything. This is all happening through the chemistry, but the result is that these genes are in competition with one another. And um, even though it puts the bird and the species in general in peril by moving away from the optimum time to reproduce, because it benefits that gene, that's what takes place. And so I, it was interesting. And, and, and the, the, the location of evolution to the gene um, is uh, the, the fact that that can actually result in the species being worse off is I think a, a reality that we don't spend much time thinking about. I think a lot of us, when we think of evolution, do think of this idea of survival of the fittest. We don't take it far enough of going, well, it's not that at all. It's actually lower level than that. And um, the result is all these interesting examples are possibilities where species drive themselves almost to extinction by the selfish gene taking over and moving them away from some optimum they might've been in before. Yeah. And I thought it was, I, I liked how he drew the comparison between, it made me think a lot. He drew the comparison between like the knowledge that humans have in their brains. And he, he contrasted that with and compared it to the genes, like the, the knowledge that's in genes. And how they kind of both have their both their uh, pros and cons. Like for instance, like genes are less personal; they don't really care, like how important they are. Like I know we talked last week about the anthropocentric, right, uh, right, which is humans just like make themselves seem more important than they are, and it kind of like biases a lot of our ideas and knowledge and theories. Mm-hmm. But uh, genes just can't do that. It just comes down to like, well, I don't want to say survival of the fittest, but. I would just say chemistry, right? I mean, in other words, like the gene isn't able to like think ahead. It's just replicating itself in the DNA. It can't have like an ego or anything. So there's a little more clarity, but then the benefit of having knowledge in the mind is uh, you can can use more conjecture. You can explain things a little bit better, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And just to wrap up on Dawkins, uh, this was something I found interesting was uh, did you know that he had coined the term meme? You know, I read that and I couldn't believe it. I thought that it came from some dork internet kid, yeah, <laughs> yeah. like some goober on uh, Twitter or something. And uh, it, it, yeah. Doc, Dawkins coined the term memes, right. uh, parentheses, rhymes with dreams, for the ideas that are replicators. Right. So, and he talks about them like ideas that replicate themselves. Like people yeah. don't have to peddle them. People don't have to push them. It's like once it's out there on the internet or something, well, for the actual memes right. that we know. Right, right. It has a self-replicating property to it. Listen, bad news, Brian. Once bad news is Brian's out there, buddy, it's all over. There's no escape. It takes care of itself. Yeah, it's absolutely. Awesome. They're forever. Yeah. Well, I always like that he gives the example of certain rules of thumb that kind of replicate themselves throughout a culture as well. And we can probably all think of things that we've heard, you know, depending on whatever culture you're in. But mm. there's things that we just hear growing up as as kids, you know, like the golden rule or something, depending on wherever you're living, you know. Yeah. And um, we just, those become a part of the culture and we just, they're easy to remember. They're easy to employ. They're easy to think about. And we just repeat them. He gives the example of jokes, you know, is another example of that where you hear a joke that's funny and you just, you're like almost compelled to repeat it when you see another group of people that uh, you want to make laugh. So. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's, it's funny how that works. There's just no, there's no uh, empowered body that's pushing these. It's just, they just live on their own. They're like their own entities. Yes, and, and how they basically they, they use us, these ideas and these genes use us as a body to, you know, to, to carry on, as it were, right? So like the idea uses your brain, like your brain is, is, is this, this transfer station to the next one. Uh, it's interesting as well that these ideas pass through us and, and continue to, to propagate out into the world. Yeah, um, what, what, else, what else did you... Uh having your notes from chapter four well i i thought the uh the notion of creation and he gets he gets to this a little bit at the end uh at the end of the chapter and i won't get it quite right but this notion that that creation um is is a very special thing and that you really 
it's it's a thing that can't be predicted. Discovery can't be predicted. And it's right. kind of obvious why, because if you could predict the breakthrough, that would just be the breakthrough. You know, if you're trying to imagine what the next iPhone is, as soon as you realize what it is, that that's it. That's it. I mean, you made the discovery. And so you can't anticipate it. And it's always a, it's always a bit of a surprise. And, and this idea, I think, ties in very neatly with uh, Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, and how, how important that kind of process is. And there's really no way to, to cheapen it, or there's really no way to, you know, predict when it will occur. Um, and it, it, it makes the, the way that humans think, therefore, very special because we are always in the process of, of making these conjectures and then subjecting them to criticism. And I, I think that it's, it's worth reflecting how uh, hard it is to make new and important discoveries. That's a very challenging thing to do. And so people that do it well are therefore deserving of some kind of credit and some kind of praise. But um, I think maybe more importantly, it's just, a, it's just important to realize how important that mechanism is or how important that process is that conjecture criticism that it really is creating something that that didn't exist before and um and, and therefore it is it, it, it is a special thing that we do that we ought to i think spend more time thinking about and um it's it's you know cliche but i mean a mind really is a terrible thing to waste and this is kind of the reason why because there's really nothing else that we have uh potentially in the universe that can do this kind of thing at least not on our planet, not in, maybe not even in the galaxy, you know, that we are able to, to think in abstract ways, form new ideas and put those ideas to criticism is special and uh, is therefore worthy of, of um, protecting and being, being, being very careful and very appreciative of. Yeah, that's, that's probably a good segue to go into uh, the next chapter, which is on abstractions, the reality of abstractions. Yes. Um, just at a high level, Jim, do you want to give a, a summary of what what abstractions are and then uh maybe tie in reductivism yes i i really like this chapter um it's, it's probably probably my favorite chapter of the book maybe maybe tied with optimism the chapter on optimism which comes later on um let me let me start by actually critiquing a point that I made last week that I, I, I don't think was made very well and that I think could really be improved on. I said something along the lines of all ideas are real. And what I what I meant by that is that ideas as an abstraction are of course real. If you have an idea in your head, that that idea is a thing that you can talk about. If you have an idea of a leprechaun, that that's a real idea in the sense that you can discuss. A leprechaun you can talk about that idea as a leprechaun but of course leprechauns are not real so i wanted to make that point off the bat it, it, it an idea is a real thing but not all ideas describe real things and i, I what i really like about this chapter is, is david Deutsch goes to great lengths to explain what what it means to say that something is real and that essentially the definition that he gives is that something is real when our at the time our best explanation includes that object and something stops being real when it's no longer a part of a good explanation. And the example that he gives is gravity. I won't pretend to understand relativity, but I can give the example in the book the way that he does. It used to be the case that our best explanation for gravity was that it was some kind of action at a distance that was described by some equation that Newton had discovered. It happens to be an inverse square law, but that's unnecessary detail for this. And then Einstein came along and showed that, in fact, you actually don't need to talk about gravity as a force, but the gravity is the result of the geometry of space-time. Now, yeah. that makes as much sense to anybody listening as it does to me, and that it makes almost no sense, but that doesn't matter because the point is that Einstein's explanation of what we experience as gravity no longer needs gravity as a force. And so at this moment in time, because we don't really need gravity as a force to explain uh, relativity or to, to explain our, you know, the, the laws of nature, gravity stops in, in, in a sense is no longer considered to be a real force. And I think, I mean, that, that is really um, an important idea because it, it gives us some kind of a testable way of saying what's real and what's not real. And it's this idea that do we need it to explain something is a, is a part of an explanation, um, which I, I, I think I've, I found to be a very powerful idea in this book. Um, and then he gets into the idea of, of emergent 
phenomena and emergent properties. And again, the example he gives in the book that I think is most telling is uh, the notion of, of, a, of a statue of Winston Churchill. And so everybody, or I, I'll, ta- I'll take it to be an actual example. I don't know if it's true or not, but the example that, that David Deutsch gives to explain why reductionism is not always a good explanation is to imagine the following. Imagine that there is a, a, a town square somewhere in England and it's a statue of copper depicting Winston Churchill. And somebody asks you why a particular car, a, a particular uh, copper atom is located at the nose of Winston Churchill's face. You mm-hmm. can explain that by discussing where copper comes from, from the nucleus of a star undergoing a supernova, and that over millions of billions of years, it somehow found its way onto Earth and then somehow got put into a statue or some kind of shape. But that really wouldn't explain it. The real explanation would be that during World War II, Winston Churchill was an important figure and that to commemorate him as a leader, we built a, still, we, we built a statue of Winston Churchill and it was copper because it, it tends to withstand the weather of, you know, mm-hmm. of Earth. That would be a better explanation. Even though it isn't going into the heart of the physical properties or the physical laws of nature that cause the events to happen. It's an emergent explanation, meaning it starts at a higher level, in this case, the level of history, but in fact actually explains better why that copper atom is there then it would be then to just say, well, you know, a star blew up a billion, billion years ago and somehow, somehow became into a shape. That really mm-hmm. would explain why. So that, that was reductionism, emergent phenomena. That was a lot. I think we can definitely unpack it plenty, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, that's the high level. Yeah. And I, I have that, that example you mentioned about space time actually highlighted here. Um, but it is a good example of like reduct- reductionism versus um, emergence properties. So like, I know they gave the example of, I think like emergent properties would be like, like fire, like being able to use fire, like how fire works, like fire gets hot, fire cooks things, fire burns things, you can spread fire, you can move it around. You don't need to understand like the, the ionization of the particles that's happening in order to use fire for something helpful for a civilization or something. Um, the counter to that would be the reductivism. And which is just breaking things down into the most elemental way you can explain it, right? Like in terms of each atom on atom interaction. And I mean, you can use that. It, it's, it's an effective way to describe fire at like a molecular basis or to describe gravity in terms of the curvature of space time, whatever that means. Right. But in terms of, uh, I don't know, throwing a ball or something or right. calculating how long it takes for something to fall, like maybe it's not quite the the easiest or most efficient way to, right. to look at those types of things well just imagine it imagine someone asking you you know why did why did team a beat team b in the baseball game nobody yeah. would say something to the effect of well their caloric output in the game was higher and therefore they score more you would say well they had better defense or they had better offense yeah you, you explain it at the level appropriate you wouldn't go into levels of how a bat hits a ball you know you wouldn't go into explaining the you know how the physics of baseball work, you would say, well, that team's were more points. They had a better defense, had a better strategy. You explain it at the level of the game. And that would actually explain why they won and not just, you know, explaining, you know, what steps occurred in, in history that led them to win, what transaction of phenomena took place in order to lead the one team to have a higher score point than the other. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, David Deutsch uh, described reductionism as being a mistake. And he says, in reality, explanations do not form a hierarchy with the lowest level being the most fundamental. Rather, explanations at any level of emergence can be fundamental. Abstract entities are real and can play a role in causing physical phenomenon. Um, causation is itself such an abstraction. So again, like this is where he's like weighing out like an idea like reductionism. And then he just like chits on it at the end and says that it's not like not real or not like an ideal way to look at things um but the other thing is he starts uh linking in where moral philosophy fits in with with uh some of these bases for knowledge and he describes it i think he borrows a term from david hume where he says in the case of moral philosophy the empiricist empiricist and justificationist misconceptions are often expressed in the maxim that you can't derive an ought from an is so I, I think he was kind of talking through and how you have to be careful to say like this is how things should be or this is how things shouldn't be and he says that that's mainly because moral theories cannot be deduced from factual knowledge 
and that morality can't be justified by reason. This is mm. like, so I thought that was interesting. Um, how do you, that begs the question, how do you define morality in any right. accurate sort of way if it can't be justified by reason? And I think he says here, you can either have reason or you could have a non-reason-based morality. Like he, he gives, lays out some options, but what was your, what was your takeaway from that? And then I do have a, uh, something else I want to read from another book, a short passage sure. that I thought played off nice for us after you. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I'll, I'll try to remember, I think it was in that chapter. I don't remember what part where he talks about explanations being a part of moral discovery. And so there's this idea that if you were to have and the example he gives is, is in the United States back in the days of slavery, that if mm -hmm. say you were to have a, a slave that wrote this like masterful work of literature and it was just like beautiful book and it was, you know, really, really a great work that that book could be used as an idea to refute the notion of racial superiority that you could use that book to attack that idea mm -hmm. and then in, in a sense force people that hold that idea to to challenge that idea so if you take somebody who really believes that blacks are inferior you show them a, a book written by a black person that is just this truly wonderful work of art that that might go towards changing their mind about that particular facet of why they hold you know the bigger moral principle of you know why they should be able to own slaves and so when I was reading that passage, I was thinking about, about how important that process is, that when we, when we find ourselves having moral disagreements with people, it's, it, it's worthwhile to, to ask yourselves, well, what, rather than worrying about something high level, what, what are the, the foundational assumptions that, that they have or that, or that we have about why we think something is true? If, if, if you think again, slavery is justified or any other number of atrocities is justified. It's worth, under, under, uh, it's worth getting to the ideas that support that. And I, I do think morality is, is hard to arrive at in any, in any simple way, but I think there's, there's a caveat, which would be that while attacking morality as a whole or justifying morality as a whole might be difficult, I think it's much less difficult to attack specific ideas. And it's much less difficult to attack foundational ideas that are based on a you know some kind of knowledge base that can then be that can then be criticized and then put in the process of reconjecturing which brings us back to kind of the summary that we had last time which is that at a at a at a starting point going into something with an open mind at least sets you up for the idea that whatever beliefs you have can at least change and mm -hmm. that as long as you're open to that criticism process and the conjecturing process too it goes hand in hand as long as you're open to that um maybe as a species that's that's the best we can do at any moment in time is we we have good ideas and bad ideas and to always be challenging them is um maybe that's the human condition i don't i, I don't know yeah just just to think about why you think the things you do or why you hold the positions you do just or i always like the the uh, neil degrasse tyson this idea of asking yourself what what evidence would you have to see that would change your mind like ask yes. yourself that question you have this idea in your head you know, what would I have to see that can change my mind? And then if someone shows you that and you don't change your mind, oops, that's a, that's a mistake. Here's your cognitive. Maybe, right. Or, or, or maybe, you know, it could also be the case that maybe what you thought was good evidence turned out to not be good evidence, but something went wrong. Either your assumption before about what you needed to see was, was in fact incorrect, or like what you're saying, it isn't, it, it is in fact correct. You're not, you're not going to change your mind. So you know, either, either one is some kind of faulty thought it needs to be corrected in some way. But I think that's a good place to start. What would you have to see that would change your mind? Know what that is and then, and then go look for it. That would be step number two, right? Go and look for what could change your mind. See if it exists. Right. No, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, going back to moral philosophy, um, I like what, what David Deutsch talked here. And then again, I, we talked about this a little bit last week, but this, this blends in very well with another one of my favorite authors. Right. Uh, Kapil Gupta. And oh, uh, this, hold up the title for a little bit longer so people can see it. Huh? Oh, yeah. This is called uh, Direct Truth. He's got like three books out. And, um, and can you read the byline on that one, too? What's on the cover? It says uncompromising, non prescriptive truths to the enduring questions of life. There you go. There you go. So 
I like it because it's philosophical, but it's not dogmatic. It doesn't, it doesn't point to any authority or any dogma mm. or anything. It's just all intrinsically uh, drawn out. Right. And so it's, it's different chapters and it's written in this format of like questioner and answer. Oh, I love those big spaces too. It turned the pages quick. We're talking oh, like tri- triple space here. Oh, like, baby. So, uh, and actually conveniently, um, I, I read like a different like chapter every day. And one of the ones I just read was what is right and wrong. Hmm. So real quick, I'll read through this. And sure. I, I think it meshes very well with a lot of what he's saying here. So you can give me your take at the end. So questioner, what is right and wrong? Answer, a societal fabrication. Question, right and wrong does not exist? Answer, no. Questioner, if I were to harm someone, wouldn't that be wrong? Answer, no. Questioner, then why, why shall I not harm people? Answer, you can if you like. Questioner, what am I missing? Answer, understanding. What understanding am I missing? The reason that you do not harm people is because of your nature, not because it is wrong. Questioner, but there are some people whose nature is to harm people. Answer, yes. And the reason that they harm people is because their ignorance blinds them to the consequences of their action. Questioner, can you please explain? Answer, a man who does evil in the world is not operating out of a sense of right and wrong. No human being truly operates out of a sense of right and wrong. They operate out of a sense of who they see themselves as and the repercussions that their actions might have within themselves. Questioner, as for the man who does evil, he does not see the repercussions? Answer, this is correct because he is blinded by selfish motive. He does not truly see the consequences of his action. Most important, the consequences to himself. To himself? Yes. If he were to have a moment of clarity in which he removed the blindfold of selfishness and and reactive hatred, he would see the mayhem he has caused. Seeing this would reveal that the devastation he has caused in his own life is far greater than that which he has caused the world, and he would instantly transform. This has happened many times throughout history. This is not the result of right and wrong. This is the result of truly seeing versus being blinded. So he's, he's essentially making the case that morality is, is a measure of how well you can see reality around you, how well you can see your own thoughts and your own biases and your own blind spots. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? I, I think it's a perfect example that ties in nicely with any bigotry that's ever existed. I mean, think of, again, back to the example of slavery, all that it really took you know, to get to where we are today is for those people that own slaves that support slavery to not, obviously not, I'm sure many of them did not, never change their minds, but presumably some of them did change their minds, mm-hmm. um, or at least later on, the society itself changes mind on this, um, to simply pay attention to the fact that, in fact, these were other human beings and that therefore deserve to be treated the same way that they wanted to be treated. And um, I, I think you said the same thing about women, about any other minority group in the U.S. or all over the world. It's this idea that, like you're saying, we remove our blinders. We stop seeing what we want to see and start seeing what's actually in front of us. And um, all of a sudden, we learn that we should treat people better. <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And um, I, it, it, in a way, I would say that that summarizes it in, in I, I know we normally avoid politics on this show, but I, I will just give an example. I mean, this would basically be why I don't support the death penalty, because I think that we are depriving that person of the possibility of changing. And it's hard to say that we would want to give some people like that an opportunity. But I think at some level, part of being an optimist, as we will later learn with David Boich, is believing that, you know, all problems are inevitable, problems are soluble, and such a problem would be somebody acting in evil ways. But we should, we should view that as a problem that we could potentially solve if we had the right knowledge of, say, human psychology or something along those lines, or how to get through to people even when they have very deep-seated hatreds of other groups of people. Sure. And like you said about the death penalty, um, sure, like you never know if a person can, can rehabilitate or be changed or not. So yeah. why make the assumption that they can and just kill them off? And also, um, if that's not enough of a reason, uh, I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that it actually costs more 
taxpayer money to put yeah. someone through the death penalty than life in prison. Just when you add up all the lawyer fees, all the right. legal costs, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I have heard that as well. I, I, get, I never know how true it is or not, but I, I, I did debate team in high school. Uh, and yeah. that was always one of the points they always would bring up. You know, it was debate death penalty would always be it costs more than like it costs more than life in prison without parole and you know, that's kind of example so yeah i a lot of reasons to not have the death penalty <laughs> those are just two but uh but i i do think it commits you to an, to an optimistic framework that we should view evil as a problem that can be dealt with and um then it's the then it's the challenge of dealing with it and mm-hmm. um, so i i like that passage that that, that resonates very well with um i think uh I think that resonates very well with how we should approach right and wrong and this idea of also not giving up on people, which is also kind of cliche, but I think yeah. it ties in well with uh, David Wish's book as well. And yeah, to wrap up on that, um, it makes, it makes you think like how, how inappropriate of a question it is to ask someone like, is this right? Or is this wrong? Right. Like, what? It, it's, it seems as if it must come from within you that you determine what's right or wrong. Like you can't just go to some guru, some, person right. just download their morality like that's not really a safe way of doing things well it, it almost seems that it would in some way cheapen the experience that you would want to know that what you're doing is right because you agree with it not because you were told to do it you know that that in, in a sense there, there's a deeper level of understanding. how often is that the case for people you know well i yeah i don't know and it's hard how would you know i mean like everything you do you have to like go through it i mean it definitely would be an interesting introspection but i think I think it is always a good idea. I mean, this is probably a strong limb to go out on, maybe a, rather a weak limb to go out on, but I think it's always a good idea to believe that in general, there are no bad questions, uh, that any question should be on the table. What the, the caveat for that is that if you're asking a question, you need to commit yourself to accepting good answers, mm-hmm. and um, which is an interesting position as well. That I, in other words, it isn't just the responsibility of the answerer to give you a good answer. It is your job as the listener to understand a good answer when you hear it. And that the, the listener is committed at that point to the conversation. Um, that if somebody really answers your question, you don't just go, oh, well, you know, maybe, I don't know. It's no. Is it a good answer? If yes, then move on. Otherwise, you know, rebuttal or something. But it, it does commit the listener, I think, to being a participant in the conversation by accepting good answers when they, when they hear them. Yeah, absolutely. I have a lot more that I want to get to, uh, for this, but I wanted to get to our review for this week. Um, so normally we do a music review. Um, we'll have our music review for next week, this week to mix things up a little bit. We're actually doing a movie review and it's a movie review that I, that I wrote. Um, and I won't, I won't really say that it's a movie review because it's more, it's more an introspection, that was inspired by chapter five of David Butch's book, but also uh, by a movie that I watched over the week called Come and See, which is a brutal World War II movie. Um, it's a very famous movie and it's famous for being, it's famous for being brutal. And so um, I put a little piece together. I'm calling it an introspection of, based on that movie and David Deutsch's book and, 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 an, and an economist that I absolutely adore, Thomas Sowell. Um, nice. And, um, I think one of the uh, quintessential thinkers of our time. And um, so let's, let, let's do that, Joe, and then we can move on to uh, the rest of the, of the discussion for the beginning of infinity. So I, I called this piece, The Cost of Bad Ideas, an introspection inspired by Come and See. The rise of Nazi Germany is attributable to many bad ideas but two stand out as being uniquely costly. One, the silly notion of an Aryan super race. Two, the equally silly notion of a global Jewish conspiracy suppressing said super race. The result of both beliefs taken together reanimated widespread anti-Semitism, or more simply, Jew hatred. The cost of Jew hatred in the Second World War is such a staggeringly high number that it is worth putting into perspective. Six million. A modern cruise ship holds around 6,000 people. Imagine a thousand cruise ships full of Jewish victims. A large college football stadium holds around 100,000 people. 
imagine 60 such stadiums full of Jewish victims. But how does this tie into our discussion on the beginning of infinity? For starters, it is worth remembering that Jew hatred existed prior to the incarnation of the Nazi party. This leads to the inevitable question, why the Jews? There are likely many reasons, but two that Thomas Sowell focuses on are the success of Jews in general and the role they played in abstract financial transactions serving as middlemen. Success of Jews led to resentment among less successful peers. And the abstract ways Jews made money led to suspicion in a culture whose notions of productivity involved physical objects. We'll get to jealousy a bit later in this piece. For now, let's stay with abstractions. It would be a gross exaggeration to blame the Holocaust on a lack of appreciation for abstract ideas. But if we take Sowell's analysis seriously, it does seem that such a mindset certainly did not help the circumstances Jews found themselves in during the 20th century. Had European sentiment around abstract financial matters been more open-minded, and the Nazis more open-minded about bad race theories, perhaps history would have been different. But alas, the history is perfectly clear that such open-mindedness did not take place. But today's movie has little to do with Jew hatred in particular. Our film follows a young boy as he joins a group of resistance fighters in Belarus. Scenes throughout the film capture the brutal murder and destruction of whole groups of people as the Nazis sweep through Europe. Its final scene depicting the slaughter of an entire village is only a glimpse into the larger war path the Nazis carved through the country. While over 600 such villages were destroyed in Belarus during the Second World War. There's no sense in giving a film like this some kind of score. It's absolutely worth watching because of how terrifying the film is. In our context of the beginning of infinity, it is worth watching for another reason, aside from seeing the consequences of closed-mindedness. This other reason is the consequences of a zero-sum perspective of the world. One only needs to look at Hitler's second book, his essays on foreign policy, to understand that his fear of a zero-sum planet played a prominent role in shaping his worldview. This world has finite resources, so naturally the races must compete for them. Taking into account the zero-sum mindset and Jew hatred, the events of the Holocaust seem, on retrospect, to have been unavoidable. But as we learn from reading David Deutsch, that is not true. At any point, better ideas could have undermined the Nazi regime. All it would have required is that people under the Nazi spell open their minds to arguments against their beliefs. But the ideas of the Nazi party were rather pernicious in that they both promoted violence and closed-mindedness. And this is perhaps the most important conclusion we can draw from this horrible episode in human history. Borrowing Deutsch's definition of irrationality, ideas that disable the holder's critical faculties, we see that evil that perpetuated from Nazism was due to the fact that their ideology was irrational. Challenge the party and you wound up in jail or dead. Again, from Deutsch, we have that all evil comes from, not, from lack of knowledge. So it stands to reason that perpetuating evil results from preventing knowledge growth. Nazism, zero sum, closed-minded and violent. This is a deadly ideology in any circumstance. But coupled with a foundation of Jew hatred present in Europe at the time, it was a powder keg for one of the largest wholesale slaughters of human life in the history of our species. But there is much cause for hope about the future. As Deutsch shows us in his book, with good ideas, any problem is soluble. Our fate, as best I can tell, is almost entirely dependent on the human race adopting an ideology that promotes positive sum development. Not only does this provide a more realistic perspective of the situation we find ourselves in, a universe that is full of resources that are valuable given the right knowledge, it also has the benefit of reducing violence we do not have to see human existence as a competition between ourselves. Competition may arise from time to time, but there is also innovation and exploration. Peace through prosperity, prosperity through technology, technology through knowledge, and knowledge through good and ever improving explanations. Our future is not zero sum. Our future is infinite and it is just beginning. Wow, nice. Uh, I like how you turn the, the, the darkness of that around there at the end. 
Well, you got to always end on a positive note when you talk about the brutality of the Holocaust. But uh, no, I thousand cruise ships. <laughs> thousand cruise ships. Um, look, I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful. I mean, of course, that was a horrible event, but um, and there are many reasons for it. And I don't want to be simplistic, and I don't want to turn that into just a you know a, a plug for David's book. I mean, that would be you know grotesque. But um, I, I do think that there are important things to, to, to notice. And um, I do think that the Nazi ideology is a, is a particularly good example of a really bad ideology. I think that's not controversial. I'm sure that's not, but it's, it's, worth, it's worth asking, why is it a bad ideology? And I think actually, you know, contrasting it with ideas in David Deutsch's book, you come to some pretty obvious ideas, violence, zero sum mentalities, closed-mindedness to challenges to your beliefs. You know, that leads to, I think, inevitably some kind of violence, or at least makes that a likely outcome. Yeah, uh, the, the zero-sum game, I think that's a very good example of this and how when you adopt that that frame of thinking that it is a zero-sum game, it makes you uh, makes you a little possessive, a little greedy, a little crazy with your actions. Absolutely. Well, and also just suspicious. Well, that that Jew over there is really successful. I, you know, he must have taken something from me. No. Yes, yeah, exactly. that's If that's how you operate, that's what you think. And, um, you know, Thomas Sowell makes that point that it's just, you know, this idea of, well, the Jews are succeeding. So, you know, what, you know, I, I wonder what's going on behind the scenes. Well, they're smart. They are very literate. They challenge, they believe in reading. Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they learn how to do, do things. Um, it's uh, zero sum mindsets, I think are almost always dangerous. Um, and I like any book that challenges that notion. Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, challenges it. And of course, you know, cover to cover, David Deutsch's book challenges that mindset as well. Yeah, um, I like how you tied it into abstractions, like how the Jews are seemingly so successful, and then a lot of their dealings are kind of abstract behind the yep. scene. Like Absolutely, like these types of abstract concepts that you can't really interact with in an emergent type of way. How do you touch interest rates? Touch it. Point to it. Can't do it. How yeah. do you How do you point to risk? Show me where risk is. Yeah, what does it taste like? <laughs> right, what, what does risk taste like? Can you hold it in your hand? No, yeah. well, then it can't be real. Well, it can be real. And um, the, the, um, the suspicion of abstractions, which existed well before Nazism came around. I mean, this was the old trope of Jews that were, you know, devious and, you know, thieves and all sort of bullshit. This came around from a fear of abstractions. And um, it was hurtful and destructive then, and it was hurtful and destructive when it happened and under the Nazi party. And, and I, this is a point to note as well, that certainly the scope that it took on Jewish life was unique. But, and this is a point that Thomas Sowell makes, other groups in history have found themselves to be in these, in these middlemen situations. That it, 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 it has occurred in other times as well. And um, it's easy to imagine that if you're somebody who like makes a bicycle or makes a, you know, a skateboard or something, um, now you're thinking, well, I make this product and I give it to them. That's why I get paid. But that person doesn't make anything. And they have more money than me. That doesn't right. seem right. You know, it, that, that kind of simple mindedness doesn't seem right. And, you know, that leads to suspicion, especially if you think there's only so much money to have. Right. Then think of how much worse that gets. And then now it's now it's really violent because now it's not only do they do they take from me, but I can't get anything from anywhere else. I have to get it back. You know, that becomes or take from somebody else. So, yeah, and uh, I like what you said about people lack the ability to think for themselves, and I think that's a major piece of this too. Like, it just takes one skilled persuader with one idea that you know most people probably would not have independently come up with on their own. Maybe they would. I don't know. But the fact that Hitler was such a good persuader, the fact that he was so influential on people, and the fact that people by nature uh like to conform they like to be sheep they like to do what the person next to them is doing right honestly i don't know if it's possible to break these people out of this trance maybe like a few people that are truly dedicated to it but the amount of energy that goes into the self-reflection and the self-examination necessary to break out of that is so immense that i i don't see a lot of people doing that so i yeah i, I don't know what the answer is um, nor, yeah, nor, nor do I. I, I. I take solace in the fact that, you know, the problem hopefully is soluble in some, in some degree that as we learn more about psychology, perhaps we discover something. But, you know, just 
to kind of get an idea. I mean, it's always worth going back and watching these old, you know, black and white history shots of, you know, yeah. when, when the, when the allies marched the Germans through the death camps. I mean, you know, th those kind of moments, I mean, if that doesn't have some kind of radical effect on your mentality of how we treat other people, I don't know what will, <laughs> I mean, I really yeah. don't, you know, if you ever watch these horrible, you know, scenes of the, uh, the people that were free from the concentration camps, I mean, if that doesn't wake you up to how violent we can become and therefore how on guard we need to be against violence in general, I, that seems like a tough <laughs> a problem to fix. Well, I, I think that's a great point. You talk about watching these things and seeing these things, and we all know um, how, how effective a form of visual persuasion is. Right. To see something makes it much more real in your mind than just like reading words in a book or hearing something about it. And I think that our technology has enabled us to uh, be more influenced by this visual persuasion. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, now we have better cameras than we did in World War One. So right. um, I, I don't see like a World War One trench warfare type thing happening today because it would be all over. You would see the, it. Right. The, hor the horror of it and whatnot. And I think that that the Internet and being able to spread images and things like that have uh, greatly reduced the, the horror and the carnage in these developed nations. I think there's still some lesser developed nations that don't have, you right. know, everyone doesn't have an uh, iPhone that can go on the internet and go to Twitter right. or whatever. Right. I, I am optimistic that that will yeah. help the situation, but at the same time, um, I mean, we're just repeating that same history. We're banning certain voices just because we don't want to hear them. We're, we're purposely running propaganda through news sites. We're, we're, we're making people follow in line with everyone else. You know, like the division right. between the two parties now is the greatest it's ever been. Right, right. People are just conforming. Right. And I, I think that the only call to fight that is to fight for better explanations. And I, I think, you know, it's... That is simple to say. The harder part is getting people who are committed to it, which is why I would present people like David Deutsch. You know, I'm on the lookout from, from what you're saying. I think you are as well, you know, on the lookout for, you know, what could actually be a quote, big tent idea? What could people actually all kind of agree with to some degree? Well, how is it not this book to some degree? I mean, really, how is it not? Who wants to argue? I mean, maybe you can find parts of the book that you don't agree with. I'm on people in the New York calling themselves, you know, doy change or something. But do we really all not get behind the idea that we should all be engaging in the idea of making our ideas better and better through criticism and then through conjecture and then to repeat the process over and over again? Yeah. I mean, if, if that can't serve as a big pimp idea, then I don't know what can. I mean, that to me seems to be the most obvious. Couple that with the idea that we really do, that as humans, we really do have this ability to um, create things that uh, should give us some kind of optimism. doesn't mean that there are problems. That's never David Deutsch's point. It's that there are problems that we can learn how to fix. Mm. So I think optimism is a Big Ten ideology. I think, you know, I don't, what would you call it? Beginning, beginning of, of infantism. I don't know what you would call it, but, you know, I think David Deutsch's ideas are, are Big Tens as well. And I think getting people to read these books and to, and to see that, hey, there actually is this place of common ground. What, what, what's the place of common ground? Conjecture and criticism. That's the common ground. That's where it has to begin. And, um, you know, for all the talk about how partisan things are, it's guys, the, the door it's right here. It's got to walk through it. It's got to be willing to challenge your own ideas, willing to accept a, a good idea when you hear it. That's it. That's really the only commitment that it takes. Mm -hmm. I, I do. I do. Uh, I do have concerns on whether or not the masses can adopt that that type of philosophy. Um. I almost wonder if the best case scenario is that persuasive persuasive leaders adopt this this mentality, sure. the beginning of infinity ism, as we've described it. Yeah, what would you call it? I like I, I, honestly, I like Deutschism. Yeah, Deutschism. We can yeah. come up with something. We'll think yeah, about it. We'll figure it out. This is not a trademark it before he does. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think those are some some excellent. Yeah. Things. I I think persuasion definitely has a role in breaking the spell. I think that's for yeah. sure. Days. Well, I think that that's 90% of it is persuasion yeah. and 10% yeah. is actually understanding. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, I think that's a big part. And I, and I think, you know, persuasion probably has a negative connotation to it. 
I don't, I don't know why, but because it, 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 it can feel kind of scheme. Like people think, oh, I, they use car salesmen. Not really what we're talking about. The idea with persuasion is the idea that if you pay attention to the person you're talking to, you can actually understand their principles, their values, and communicate with them in a way that addresses those actual yeah. concerns. Yeah. You're not going to change, you know, a person, a person's mind by not understanding their foundational beliefs. You have to understand that person. Persuasion is effective communication is what it comes down to. So I I don't think, I think it has a bad reputation because we've all encountered the sleazy car salesman or something like that, but that's not really what I think what Joe's talking about. And, uh, you know, learning how to communicate, that would be part of the problems are soluble. Learning that human beings, our brains, our minds work a certain way, understanding how to communicate with those entities seems to me to be a worthwhile um, uh, effort, basically. I mean, that, I mean, that makes sense at least. Yeah, I, I think that's a, good, a great wrap up on that. Um, Jim, did you say we had some social media shout outs this week? Well, yes, we're, we do have a social media shout out today. I want to give a shout out to, not surprisingly, but actually the author of the book, David Bush. So David Bush is on Twitter. I did not realize that until recently. So we're going to, David Bush is going to be our shout out for, for this week. Um, I enjoy this book. I recommend it to people. I think people should read it. Um, you know, I, I put it on my central reading list along with Nassim Taleb, along with Peter Thiel. This is a book worth reading, worth understanding. Um, and, and it's, it's worth, I think, putting in the effort to understand how all of the ideas mesh together, kind of like what Joe is doing with the books that he's reading. It's worth figuring out you know, there's a, there's a sense in which good ideas sometimes overlap with each other. And there's an idea, and I know I've read it in David Deutsch's book, that there's this idea that actually, you know, good ideas tend to converge on one another because of reality, that they all converge towards reality. And so it's not a mistake that you would hear people like Peter Thiel and David Deutsch arriving at similar conclusions about innovation, et cetera, because it's a good idea. And it would make, it would make sense that you would arrive at, the, at a good idea from multiple different uh, starting points. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I think that that's definitely the case. Um, and it's interesting because every, every, every person has a different frame of thinking about things, a different, a different starting point. And to see the commonalities in everyone, uh, I think that's the only way to learn new things. Like you can't just, you can't just take one person's philosophy on something and just totally adopt it as your own. Um, because like brains work different ways. Like your brain doesn't work the same way as David Deutsch's brain works. So any one book, any one person cannot give you everything you need to converge on those good ideas. You need that bigger picture frame of seeing, right. oh, David Deutsch thinks this, Peter Thiel thinks this, Nassim Taleb thinks this way. Yeah. That provides a, a, a framework or a range of boundaries from which you can find your own personal truth. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, mean, I think it's just, you know, learning, right? It's, it's, it's learning is that fun and exciting thing we do in between bumps of code, right? And it's always fun. And it's always a matter of connecting different ideas. And I think doing the effort to figure out how they can all be consistent. And then the caveat to that, the harder point, by far the harder point is when you have an idea that you've had for a really long time, but you come to realize it just isn't a good one. Oops. You got to get rid of it. And that's okay. You'll survive. I know I have changed my mind on countless things. I'm, I'm sure Joe has as well. We're both still here, haven't gone anywhere. Um, and that's just life, you know, and that the, the better you get at that. And I was like, you know, Sam Harris always describes this way of you have all this tension of getting rid of a bad idea, but then when you finally get rid of it, you just feel like a weight's off your shoulders. Like you, you, you feel better when you get rid of bad ideas, but like, there's all this, I'm not doing, I'm not doing, I'm not doing. And yeah. then you do, you're like, well, that's actually a very pleasant experience. It's actually very pleasant how long I hold on to an idea that you know is incorrect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, converging on reality and giving up bad ideas. The two go hand in hand. Yes, I, I think so too. And, you know, I had two more things on here I wanted to get to, but I'm not sure how much really need to. I wanted to talk about knowledge and error correction, this idea that we're going to get into this, I think, more next week. When we talk about universalism, the jump to universalism, and that why universal systems need to be digital because of error correction. It's a really interesting idea. Um, and we'll save that for next time. We'll get to that chapter then. And then um, 
let's see what else I had on here. That might be it, folks. That might be it. I think I think that's it. That's all I had on the list for today, Joe. Any other closing ideas or thoughts before we close out the episode? Uh, that's a wrap. All right, everybody. Well, as always, thank you for joining us. Follow us on Twitter at roses underscore rhetoric. We're also at our website, www.rosesandrhetoric.com. And of course, follow Joe as well at Jose four underscores Cuervo. He's on Twitter and Instagram. And the Rose and Rhetoric is also on Instagram at the same handle as our Twitter. Um, so follow us on there. Check us out there. Um, look for our music review next week. And then we'll, we might tie in some more movie reviews as well. Uh, keep, keep mixing it up a little bit. Um, if you have any other ideas for segments you want to see or, or ideas that we talk about here that you like to see covered in a different way, tell us below in the comments. As always, be sure to like, share, and subscribe. But until next time, I'm Jimmy Hackett signing off for Joseph Stanford saying ciao.